You're listening to WCT.FM, talk radio like no other. God, I love the station. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be. Around the nation, around the world, you're listening to the Supernatural Realm on WCET.FM, otherwise known as Triple W, late night in the Midlands.com. We're also streaming live on WCET 101.7 FM in Columbia, South Carolina. That's Columbia Talk in Columbia, South Carolina. Well, we got a great, great show today. It's my birthday, and we got a phenomenal. I mean, phenomenal guest this evening, and uh, Brother Chip is going to tell the listeners who it is this evening, <laughs> or morning, well, whichever. Thank Where you, you Tim Roxbury, the great Tim Roxbury, and happy birthday, Tim Roxbury. You know, and, and it's fitting to see that uh, for your birthday, on your birthday, we have the show of shows, just mm-hmm. like you said, and the guest of guests for that. Uh, somebody that you and I both have an awful lot of respect for, and and we're going to talk about, especially in the first hour, uh, the latest book by our guest and his co-author. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, well, let me uh, let me say who we have today uh, with us is Andrew Collins. Uh, it's, it's exciting enough to say that, but for having him for the second time, <laughs> it's even more exciting. And for Tim's birthday, no less. Andrew Collins, uh, a lot of you may recognize from the TV show Ancient Aliens, um, and he's been really a, a phenomenal part of that show, uh, but really, you know, oftentimes when we talk about ancient civilizations, and, and Timmy and I have had kind of a pet peeve over the last few years, because anytime you watch shows about ancient civilizations, they make them look feckless, stupid, <laughs> you know, <laughs> idiotic. Um, but I think that uh, Andrew Collins here has just has this laser focus for really uh, seeing these civilizations, not only ancient, but prehistoric, too, um, as a lot smarter than we think. And uh, it's funny to think that sometimes, you know, we look at an ice age that occurred in one period of time and a potential comet impact, which they talk about in their latest book, uh, right around 10,800 BC. Um, and then after the fallout from that, and, uh, like a mini ice age from 9,600 BC on, you can see, especially uh, according to Andrew Collins here and the uh, book's co-author, uh, Dr. Gregory L. Little, uh, who was a guest of mine just this past Monday, shameless self-promotion, but Kindness Beyond the Veil, which is right here on this very network, uh, Mondays from 7 to 9 p.m., that this is such a brilliant work of art, and we've learned a lot of things for the first time. We're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, but Andrew has, uh, well, I should mention the name of the book, shouldn't I? <laughs> it's Den- Denisovan Origins, um, Hybrid Humans, Gobekli Tepe, and the genesis of the giants of ancient America. I mean, 
there is so much fascinating information in here. It's stunning. It might be a little bit hyperbole to call it the best book ever written, but I think it's pretty even keel to refer to it as the best book ever written about ancient and prehistoric civilizations and exactly who these Denisovans might be and how far back they could date. So exciting stuff. We'll also mention uh, The Cygnus Key, another book by Andrew Collins here, Denisovan Legacy, Gobekli Tepe and the Birth of Egypt. We'll be talking about Gobekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods, Temple of the Watchers and Discovery of Eden, and From the Ashes of Angels, The Forbidden Legacy of a Fallen Race, probably more in the second hour, and some very important things coming up with that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, that's my tease for the time. And the bio of this beautiful man, you know, who we love. And, and his works are the most phenomenal of their kind. And it's tough. And Timmy and I have been there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes it's harder, hard to be the smartest person in the room. Uh, because sometimes we find that there are consequences to these things. And, and we'll talk about some of that in the second hour as well. But I'm going to turn it to our wonderful birthday boy, the legendary <laughs> Tim Raxbury. <laughs> as he welcomes the phenomenal Andrew Collins to Supernatural Realm. Right, welcome to the show, Andrew. It's great to have you on this phenomenal evening. And, uh, yeah, it, it's it's horrible what people go through when when they are right. Um, <laughs> the, the, the trolls that come out of the woodwork when you're, when you're doing something right, that's because you are doing something right and you're bringing the truth out uh, is the reason for these attacks, I think, and which we'll get into later. And, uh, man, almost 30 books or 30-plus books that you have. Uh, when did you get started in all this, Andrew? It's phenomenal work that you do. Well, well, well Tim, uh, firstly, obviously, a happy birthday to you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, for today, uh, it's a privilege to be on uh, your show here. Uh, but the answer to your question is, um, I, I suppose, when I was a boy, really. Uh, you know, I, I like the mysteries of life. Mm -hmm. um, I like ghosts, I liked UFOs, I liked, um, you know, weird dreams, astral projection, you know, psychology, Sigmund Freud, anything like this, when I was about eight to ten. Mm -hmm. um, and I assumed all the other kids were into it as well, and they did seem to be into it for a while. And then when you went to high school, you know, everybody has other interests like girls and doing their own thing and football and getting drunk and whatever. <laughs> Well, I liked all that as well, but I continued to have this interest in, in, in the weird shit of life, basically. Uh, and, and as soon as I left school at the age of 16, which, you know, totally without any kind of qualifications, let's point this out, um, I went to work in London uh, uh, with a shipping company, and I had a train journey every day, and I would read pulp paperbacks, mm. uh, and these were all about UFOs, ancient mysteries. I'd read John Keel, Jacques Vallée, um, and, of course, Eric Von Daniken. Yes. Uh, and all of these books started changing my mindset. Uh, and, you know, I wanted to get closer to this phenomena. And I started off as a UFO uh, investigator. I investigated some of the most important cases in the late 70s in Britain. Um, but gradually, I started to take an interest not just in the paranormal, but what we called the Earth Mysteries. Mm -hmm. The Earth Mysteries was about ley lines and megalithic sites uh, and about energies and, you know, uh, and the fact that the ancients were much cleverer than what we've given them credit for, 
Uh, and one, I, I started to write books. The, the book started with just a couple of hundred, then 500, then 1,000, then 2,500. And then the next book I did was 15,000, which I published myself and filled my entire house up with <laughs> um, and realized that I ha would have to spend my next two years getting rid of these books by putting three or four hundred in the back of my car each Monday and not coming home until they'd gone. And that's exactly what I did. And then I got noticed by Random House and the rest is history. So wow. that's wow. Phenomenal. Yeah, I'm going to have to go into my trunk, Timmy, and get my books out, see if I can do something. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a great uncle when I was young who was very much into ancient civilizations, UFOs, and, and I was a teenager then, and I really wasn't interested in that. All I wanted to do was work and fight fire and ride my bicycle. So I'm um, looking back on it now. I wish I would have talked to him uh, a lot. Being I'm interested, you know, in, interested in this stuff now, and hit it, you know, hit it, gave me an education because he's really into a lot of the things that that I am now and that you are, Andrew, that you've mm -hmm. written about, and and that's it's great having you on the show today. Thank you. <laughs> Chippe, you got a question for Andrew? Oh, you know, yeah, I've got a thousand questions for Andrew, but I I. Look, we, we've read this latest book, uh, Denise of an Origins, um, and, uh, you know, you are one of these guys, one of the few people that in my entire career of interviewing, uh, and Timmy's too, mm -hmm. that if you have a disagreement with, it's you have to look at yourself as the one who's probably wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, we, don't, we don't really come up with people like that every day. But to see this latest work and how brilliant it is, and we do want to mention that uh, it will be coming out October 3rd in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, October 3rd, mark that date down on your calendars, uh, all our friends there. Uh, we have the luxury of having uh, read it. And there are a couple of things that, um, you know, I realized that I had wrong in that situation. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them was, in all my research, I was so focused on the Orion's Belt, you know, for a lot of these ancient sites, if not earlier, as kind of being the, the place that everybody was looking in the night sky for. Mm -hmm. um, but what I learned through this book is, is that's only part of it. That's basically... Small part uh, of it. Yeah, it's, and I'm a bird guy, so that, that's where the swan of judgment is. <laughs> I'll just say that as a tease. But we also go way back, you know, uh, at least 400,000 years and look at the civilizations that were around. Then you think that Neanderthal, uh, and I believe that we're starting to see hints, and, and as you so eloquently pointed out in this book, Denisovan Origins, of this species called Denisovan, which, if I'm not mistaken, uh, seemed to have a, a bigger mandible uh, jaw and some almost uh, autistic kind mm -hmm. of uh, functionality, if you will, okay. savant-like behavior for its time, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. And, uh, you know, kind of isolated, staying to themselves, but we see some influence, especially with this book, that uh, 
they were also kind of with Neanderthals, and maybe there was some co-mingling and co-mating going on, early Homo sapien and modern Homo sapien as well, and maybe started fading away about 40,000 or so years ago. Yeah. Um, so on them, just the Denisovans alone, how accurate is that? Assessment? Yeah, I was just going to ask them if that's, pretty, if that's accurate and what your research has shown, uh, Andrew. Yeah, I mean... Um, I mean, that's uh, entirely accurate. I mean, it's more a case of where do we start, really, with, with all of this. Uh, let's start with the Denisovans. I mean, uh, from my own perspective, um, I, I mean, I, I saw a documentary uh, about them, uh, and I'm going to say probably about 2012. Really? And wow. the, the story was, but, but having said that, at the time I didn't really take a lot of notice in it. I mean, I thought, there's something important about these guys, but I'm not sure what. So I'm going to put it to one side and come back to them <laughs> later. But, um, but the story up to that point was that uh, in this cave in southern Siberia, uh, which is Russia, very close to the borders with uh, Kazakhstan to the west, Mongolia to the south, and um, where else are we? Mongolia, China. Yes, of course, China to the east. Um, there was a cave and archaeologists had been working on there since the 1980s. And they'd found layers of activity going back from essentially you know, the modern day right the way through till about 280,000 years ago. And in a layer corresponding to about 40 to 50,000 years ago, they came across this finger bone. Uh, and they thought that it looked human, uh, so they broke it in two. Uh, now, whether this was accidental or on purpose seems to be a bit obscure, but <laughs> it was broken in two, and one part was sent to California, to a laboratory there, and the other one was sent to the Max Planck Institute of Physical Anthropology in Leipzig in Germany. And it was the Germans who were quick off the mark, and they sequenced this bone, which meant basically that they would pull it apart and find out every single one of its genes. And the genes, of course, are what makes us, you know, our physicality, um, the way that we work, the way that we think. And when they looked at this resulting genome, as it's called, they realized, though it had certain similarities, it had closer similarities to the Neanderthals, but there were enough variations in all of it to show that this finger bone was from a completely different type of human species, one that they'd never come across before. So they realized that they were onto something incredible because we knew about the Neanderthals. The Neanderthals lived in Europe, they, left, they lived in Southwest Asia, they lived in Central Asia, but they didn't really know what was going on beyond that. In other words, in Eastern Asia, Southeast Asia, um, there were a few Homo erectus still kicking around. Um, they were guys that had been around for, you know, perhaps several hundred thousand years, possibly even a million years. Um, they obviously knew that modern humans had been in places like China, certainly uh, as far as um, 60,000 years ago, but there was some tentative evidence to suggest that some early form of human had been around for at least 200,000 years ago in China. But now 
we had evidence of somebody else, something different, an other. And this other, they started to refer to as Denisovan. And that's the correct way of pronouncing it, by the way, Denisovan. Oh, okay. And and this, of course, obviously comes from the place of discovery, which is the Denisovan cave. Well, they also found two human molars, and they were huge. In fact, one of them was so large that they initially dismissed it as that of a cave bear. And they tested these, and they found that these were also Denisovan. Um, And this was all that they had to work on initially. But what became apparent is that many of the genes that the Denisovans had had been passed on. When I say many, at least some Mm -hmm. of the genes that the Denisovans had had been passed on to a large number of modern populations. Mm. Mostly populations in Eastern Asia, Southeast Asia, in Ireland, Southeast Asia, you know, the likes of Indonesia, the Philippines, Papua New Guinea, Australia, certain areas of Oceania in the Pacific, uh, and yes, with traces also in the Americas. In the Americas, yeah. So we knew that after the Denisovans would appear to have vanished, and all the indications from the genetics was that this occurred around 40,000 years ago, is that they had hybrid descendants. And those hybrid descendants would have continued on their legacy genetically and, I would argue, uh, materialistically as well, Mm -hmm. into other parts of the ancient world. Interestingly enough, there was no Denisovan DNA in any modern populations in Europe. So this meant that the peoples that were coming out of Africa were going into Europe and encountering the Neanderthals. They were interbreeding with them, Mm -hmm. leaving Europeans with about 2 to 3% of Neanderthal DNA. But those people that were coming out of Africa and going eastwards from about 65,000 years ago were encountering Denisovans, interbreeding with them, and creating these hybrid Denisovan modern humans that carried that legacy into other parts of the world. Now, and they, of course, you know, overran and probably wiped out any existing Denisovans that were around. Now, the Denisovans themselves are strongly related to the Neanderthals. But even within the past few weeks, it's becoming apparent that their physicality, the way that they looked, was actually much closer to us mm-hmm. than it was to the Neanderthals. Wow. I mean, we have this impression when we look online and we see pictures of the Neanderthals that they were stooped. You know, they were like something out of Richard III from <laughs> You know what I mean? Well, we know that that's completely wrong now. Mm-hmm. We know that they stood upright. We know that they were very intelligent. We know that they made an incredible amount of inventions which were almost certainly passed on to us modern humans. But come to the the Denisovans now, they look like us. They had incredibly advanced technologies, which we'll come on to shortly. And those legacies were passed on to us. So what I am suggesting uh, with this book, which is obviously co-written with uh, Greg Little, is that these technologies from the Denisovans kick-started our own 
human civilization, probably about 40 to 50,000 years ago. And in a manner that we obviously encountered these Denisovans, we probably didn't get on with them to start with. We probably bashed them on the head, in all honesty. But that wasn't before we'd had sex with them, of course. (laughs) Of course. That's how I date. (laughs) So so (laughs) by doing this, obviously their legacy, whether it be genetic or whether it be their knowledge, was being passed on to us as well. Mm -hmm. So even after those Denisovans disappear from the scene, and officially they disappear about 40,000 years ago, but there are some genetic studies now that suggest that some of them may have hung on till as late as around 15,000 years ago in Southeast Asia. So, you know, that's an exciting prospect. Mm -hmm. And you have to start looking at this information and say, well, if that's the case, then did they really have an impact upon our civilization? Is it possible that they passed on their technologies to us? Well, let's go through what we know about them so far. Okay. Well, firstly, if you, if you can get access online, just type in Denisovan bracelet, and you'll see this beautiful fragments of this green stone bracelet well we'd call it a a bangle but Mm -hmm. you know it's called a bracelet online and it's beautifully fashioned beautifully cut beautifully polished and it has within it a drilled hole that when examined under the microscope showed a feed rate for the the drilling of the hole that was so fast that it was comparable to a modern day drill Now, this is not to say that the Denisovans had electric drills. Nobody's saying that. But they had the mind to create a very fast spinning drill and drill bit. Now, how they this is precision cut. There were pictures in the book. Yeah, Andrew, I have have a question, uh, kind of like a follow up question. But um, the Denisovan civilization. Does it fall in line with the biblical text, like, like you know, as far as the giants go, when, when there was mention about the giants in, in, in early scripture? Yeah, well, okay. Now, here's the thing. So far, we only have two fragments of a skull, a jawbone that was found in Tibet. We have three uh, molar teeth, all of which are of large size. Uh, we have a finger bone, and that's it. So mm-hmm. everything that we've got as far as the, um, you know, the, 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 the anatomical evidence of the existence of the Denisovans, we can put in two hands at the moment. Mm-hmm. But that tells us enough. And the geneticists that have done all the work, particularly those associated with the Max Planck Institute, have all said that these guys must have been huge. And I mean, I've got the quotes of this in the book. Now, my skeptics say, oh, you know, you, you know, you can't tell simply from a, a few bones and a few teeth yeah, that these right. guys were large. But if the geneticists that are doing all the work are all unanimously coming up and saying these are big guys, then I suspect that this is going to be the case, particularly as in the very areas where these bones have been found. And we're talking here southern Siberia. Uh, we're talking about Tibet, there are stories in these areas and obviously in many other parts of the world, particularly these very clear, precise stories 
that before the modern humans entered the area, there were giants existing in this area that essentially ruled the area and passed on mm. their technology and ideas to the first modern humans. Mm. I find that too much of a coincidence. Mm, okay. uh, and in Siberia, for instance, it talks about these giants and it, you know, it talks about whole groups of them. Right. It talks about them building the first stone houses, building the first stone bridges, doing the first irrigation, um, creating the first musical instruments, uh, all of this technologies being passed on to the first humans in the region who are the descendants of these giants. And it clearly says that mm -hmm. in the mythology and the legends. Going to Tibet, where the jawbone uh, of a Denisovan was found as early as 1980, although it wasn't identified as such as a Denisovan until essentially the last couple of years. Um, in this area, you have the stories that before modern humans were here, the area of Tibet was ruled by these uh, beings, uh, non-human beings called the Sirin, that's S-R-I-N, and also another form of what they call ogre called the Badud, which is B, uh, hold on, uh, B-D-U-D, Badud. Don't ask me, you know, exactly <laughs> how to pronounce that. But right. anyway, th th in essence, these are giants. Mm. And that they had the first ruling dynasties of Tibet before us human dynasties came along and took over the show. I find this a little bit too coincidental. The fact that we are looking at the Denisovans as being big guys, mm. basically. And when I say big, how big are we talking? Um, obviously, we don't know. It could be six foot, could be six and a half feet, but Nine I foot. suspect it's larger than this. I suspect we're looking at seven to seven and a half feet. Now, we're not saying all of them will this, mm -hmm. but I think some of them could be. So going back to your initial question about could we be looking at the, the true watchers or Nephilim of the Bible? Right. I think, yes, there is every reason to believe that the stories of the Nephilim um, are some kind of weird, warped, latter-day echo mm -hmm. of the existence of the Denisovans from a much earlier epoch. Wow. Uh, to, to add to Tim's question, uh, Timmy's birthday, by the way, happy birthday, Tim. Um, because w I, was, I was talking to, to Greg uh, Monday. You know, Monday. We were yeah. talking uh, really about this, and, and I, I don't know how full you both are on, on agreement or have different theories. There's some... Uh, shamanism going on throughout the history of, of this particular species to add to all this, but um, do you feel that they might have been, because they've often so so often been described, you know, as in Sumerian or, or you know, even biblical terms as, as winged, uh, Yeah. but if there's some sort of shamanistic or tribal type of thing, perhaps that they found birds, some sort of big, large birds as kind of worship items and might have worn them as garments. So if yeah. they're recovered, maybe it's those that would be mistaken for wings. Yeah. Well, okay. Look, if people read my books, there is one common theme in all of them, and that's bird shamans. Going all the way back to From the Ashes of Angels in 1996, I recognize the significance of shamans that wore cloaks of feathers uh, and i first came across this 
um, when I was working on the Ashes of Angels, which, by the way, all of these books are extensions of each other, obviously, mm, <laughs> because um, I was working on uh, trying to understand who the watchers were of the Book of Enoch. Mm -hmm. And I carefully read every account of them. And although some of them were, were very obviously described as, as winged angels, there was a couple of references that almost were like something that hadn't been purged from an original form of the, of the Book of Enoch. And that talked about these angels not having wings, but as cloaks of feathers. Hmm. And I remember reading that and thinking, they're talking about shamans. They must be talking about shamans. Are the Watchers and their hybrid offspring, the Nephilim, shamans in some way? So I then started focusing my attention on the area that the Watchers were said to have lived. I mean, literally, <laughs> physically lived. And this was South East Anatolia um, and the area generally around there of the Near East, you know, northern Iraq, northern Syria, right. western uh, Iran. And in this area was the birth of the Neolithic Revolution. And also in this area were many traditions to do with bird shamans, shamans who were wearing cloaks of vulture feathers. Mm. Um, and the vulture was important because it was a symbol of death and rebirth because of its association with what today we refer to as sky burials. Sky burials are where human corpses, cadavers are, cadavers are put out into the open, still done today, for instance, in the Himalayas, and the birds will come down and they will literally pick clean the bones of a human and either those bones will be uh, collected up and put into a secondary burial or in Tibet, actually. They're actually ground up and made into a paste and the birds take that away as well. And this was the basis of a type of spirituality relating to the journey of the soul into the next world, uh, into what we'd call the afterlife. And I wrote all about this in From the Ashes of Angels, uh, which is now banned, of course, but we'll talk all about that later mm -hmm. on. Um, and what I said is that there were many different reliefs and carvings of vultures in the pre-pottery Neolithic culture mm -hmm. of southeast um, Anatolia, places like Chatelhoyak, which is in central southern Turkey and other places, and evidence of vulture shamanism, and that these vulture shamans were remembered in mythological tradition as the Watchers and the Nephilim. That, that's basically the premise of my, my first book. Wow. But as the years went by, it became obvious that this idea of humans transforming themselves into birds by wearing bird paraphernalia, whether it be you know, the, the wings of birds, whether it be their talons, whether it be their skulls, uh, whether it be their, their, their uh, leg bones or something like this, was all part of a much bigger picture, something that related to the transmigrational journey, not just in southeast Anatolia and the Near East, but right the way across the Eurasian continent, from Europe, in places like, obviously, Britain, Finland, uh, I talk about Russia, Estonia, 
Uh, I talk about uh, France and the Lascaux Cave. I talk mm-hmm. about uh, uh, Siberia, Mongolia, etc., etc. And it suddenly becomes apparent that you're dealing with a universal spirituality revolving around the idea that the soul takes the form of a bird, not just to trans transmigrate from this world to the next, but coming from the next to here in the first place. The idea that a bird, for instance, a stalk um, or a, a swan in some parts of Europe will bring a newborn baby into the world. Right. Quite clearly, that doesn't happen because we all know that, <laughs> that, that, that different processes are involved in bringing babies into the, the world. However, this is a distorted memory of the idea of the human soul being brought into the world, you know, quite literally through the presence of a bird. Now, as to which bird, it varies from region to region. Region to region, sure. In, the, in, 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 south, in, in southeast, in Anatolia and the Near East, of course, it's the vulture. We've talked about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in most parts of Europe, it's a swan or a goose. Uh, in America, for instance, it's generally a, a raptor bird or an eagle, uh, often referred to as the thunderbird. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and there are variations of this, this, this obviously all over the world. Um, but what was interesting, and of course, this is what started to be apparent, is that there was a certain area of a sky that seemed to be important to the entrance to the afterlife. And this, if you look up, it was actually on the Milky Way, where the Milky Way splits in two, into two separate streams. And it was the constellation of Cygnus, the celestial bird who, as I mentioned, is a swan mostly in Europe, but in um, North America, uh, it can be um, a crane, it can be the thunderbird, it can be a goose, it can also be a swan, again, just like in, in Eurasia. Mm-hmm. And it would seem to be for some reason that the ancients focused on that area of the sky as the gateway or portal out into the afterlife, into the sky world. Okay, can, can um, I ask you quickly, uh, right along of what you're talking and, about, and follow because up, this I got, yeah. journey to the, the soul, Yeah. Uh, because for, again, and I said it earlier, I yeah. always thought that the Orion and Sirius, yeah. you know, yeah. but that's a yeah. constellation where the, the bird is on this journey to the soul that's that right. ultimately yeah. leads to this thing. What inspired you? Because this well, is something you've been okay. talking about for a while, well, to see Cygnus as this. This is a, this is a great story, because, I mean... <laughs> Um, I mean, it, it, the whole thing with Cygnus really started when I first went to Gebekli Tepe in 2004. Um, and at that time, the whole place was only half excavated. A lot of the key stones we know today, like the vulture stone, had not even been uncovered at that time. Mm. And I looked at the stones and I looked at you know, what carvings were, were, were freely available at the time. Bearing in mind, there was nobody there then. I mean, there was no one, not one person i mean the local farmer and his son came across <laughs> to, to shake our hand and say hi um but that that was about it um now obviously it's it's turkey stone st- turkey stone hinge obviously and uh, <laughs> you have to get you know mini buses up to it and it's a huge great fanfare to get there but that, that's the story we'll tell in the second hour but right. um but i looked at those stones and i thought what's going on here and um at first, I didn't know. It was almost like the whole thing was alien. I mean, alien in the sense that this was nothing to do with ancient Egypt. 
I couldn't see any similarities with mm-hmm. Mesopotamia, with the Indus Valley, whatever. And, and I'll be honest, the only similarities I could see between Gebekli Tepe and its carvings was actually Mesoamerica or South America. Wow. Uh, there was very strong similarities between the two. But that may or may not be coincidence. But that's, but that, that's it. It had that raw, powerful feel to it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I came back from Gebekli Tepe and... Um, I started to realize that the, that the enclosures were almost certainly facing towards the north. Now, right. this was something that, that just came to me essentially intuitively. My, uh, my colleague, the engineer, Rodney Hale, started checking this out. We started to realize that the two huge monoliths at the center of the enclosures at Gebekli Tepe seemed to be focusing on one particular star, and that was the bright star Deneb in the constellation of Cygnus. Um, So I started to wonder why this was. And this took me into looking at the mythology of Cygnus and the swan uh, and obviously its other variations all the way around the world. And that initially led to a book called The Cygnus Mystery, which came Mm. out in 2006. Now, my colleague Rodney Hale also realized something at this point, and that was that the three wing stars of, of Cygnus were a perfect match to the geographical positions of the three pyramids of Giza. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and I remember him telling me this, and, and this came to him suddenly in the middle of the night, by the way, all strange <laughs> revelations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember him telling me this, and I was obviously writing the book at the time thinking, oh my God, if I write this... <laughs> Put me in direct opposition to my my good friend and colleague Robert Bouval, who's obviously proposed that um, that, that, that the three belt stars of Orion uh, relate to these. But um, you know that the work that I did made sense, and I thought, no, I'm going to go with this, and I'll just su- suffer the wrath, basically, of, of, of Robert and his supporters. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. Obviously, a huge you know, battle began where, um, over uh, whether, you know, Cygnus or Orion was the most important geezer. But the upshot of all of this, and, you know, we can go into in, uh, intricacies later, but is that they're both important. That's mm. the answer to it all. Both of them are important because they are both part of the same cosmic death journey and they both have just as important roles to play. Um, and we know this now from uh, essentially the cue that, um, that that comes from Native American cosmology. And this is only stuff that's come out in the last 10 years relating to what we call today the path of souls, death journey. And this is the fact that among as many as 30 to 40 different tribes uh, from the uh, you know, the Great Lakes, St. Lawrence River, Algonquin-speaking peoples, right the way down to the Plains uh, peoples, right the way down to the Mississippi culture, uh, with all their incredible relief imagery, you know, places like Mound, Moundville, Alabama, uh, and other similar so mound out. complexes, mm-hmm. is that there seems to be a universal uh, cosmology and cosmic geography. And f- piecing this together from the folklore, the ethnological, you know, uh, information that's been pulled together by, you know, early folklorists, 
ethnologists and whatever that worked with all these people, in, particularly in the 19th century, which up to this point had been ignored mm-hmm. as meaningless rubbish, you know, that these people were into all these superstitious ideas, is now being pulled together and, and shows this incredible pattern. And the pattern is this, that at the point of death, the soul of the deceased or that of the shaman, let's point this out, shamans were considered to die during their death chant their 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 their, their death what you call a death trance basically they would make a leap of faith from this world onto the milky way and they would pick up a certain gateway within that milky way which was in the vicinity generally of the orion constellation in fact often this was focused on one particular object in orion which was a nebula called M42, Messier 42, which is in the sword of Orion. Okay. Sometimes, and I have to point this out, sometimes it's not Orion, it's actually the Pleiades, which oh, is the gateway into the Milky Way. And that's its, its own series of traditions. And that, that I think is also extremely old. And from there, the soul would travel along the Milky Way until it reached this second portal this second gateway uh, and this is where the milky way splits in two and that's what all these traditions say and here the soul would meet a judge this judge was often in the form of a birdman and the name that was given very often to this birdman was skull crusher or brain smasher um, and this sounds very gruesome i know um, and i think that the meaning of this has been much misinterpreted, but what this actually means is that it's about the release of one part of the the soul from inside the, 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 the sorry, the one part of the soul from inside the cranium, inside the skull itself, to free it, to allow it to go into the afterlife. And this was done symbolically by crushing the skull, breaking it apart and allowing that soul to become free so it could enter the afterlife. But it would only enter the afterlife if it was virtuous. If it wasn't, it would be thrown into oblivion by going along another course because the two arms of the Milky Way were seen as these two of these two different uh, outcomes. One, you would go into the afterlife. The other one, you would be cast to oblivion. Uh, And that oblivion, by the way, was in the vicinity of the constellation of Scorpius, which is very close to where one of these arms of the Milky Way just ceases to be. And just beyond it is the Scorpius constellation. Um, So this was this death journey. So in other words, Cygnus and Orion played this dual role in allowing the soul to reach the other world. And what um, my colleague um, Greg Little realized at a very early point and this is probably about 2013, was that this mimicked almost exactly the same cosmic death journey in ancient Egypt. Mm. Um, And we we wrote about this uh, in a book called Path of Souls, Mm. uh, which, you know, which was actually Greg's book, but I I did contributions to it. This was published in 2014. Um, And obviously I I talked about this in in my book subsequent to that, you know, Gebekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods and also the Cygnus Key. But I think it's important to mention that 
that Graham Hancock in his latest book, America Before, also goes into this in great length. Ooh. Talking about Orion being the, you know, the point of receipt of the soul, but it then going on to the constellation of Cygnus and Deneb in particular, the bright star Deneb in Cygnus, uh, and they're entering into the afterlife. Uh, and I think this is, this is great for me. It's great for Greg because, you know, obviously Graham Hancock is, you know, the, the biggest of all of the ancient mystery writers. Uh, and for him to acknowledge this also is very important. This and he does credit both Greg and I for having, you know, first realized this connection between the Native American uh, path of soul's death journey and that in Egypt. So, you know, this is all good news. But yeah, what yeah, Graham well says, done you, right? Yeah, <laughs> but what Graham says, and this is also very important, is that because this this journey is present both in the old world, in other words, on the Europe, on the 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 the, the Euro Asian const, continent, but also in the Americas, um, because the Americas were in theory isolated from around, let's say, twelve thousand years ago till the present day. Mm-hmm. Um, that this tradition was older than that. And he sees it as coming from what he refers to as the lost civilization, uh, the lost civilization that created all the monuments around the world that we see today from Gebekli Tepe to the Great Pyramid, to the mound complexes of North America, uh, you know, to, to everything in between. And he's saying that it comes from a lost civilization. Well, what Greg and I refer to this same thing in the new book, The Nisivan Origins, is the shamanic civilization. In other words, this civilization of the mind that almost certainly existed and was present throughout the upper Paleolithic period. And I propose, and I think this is something which we have to start looking at, is that all of these ideas, all of these cosmological ideas, and much of the technology that was inherited by our earliest ancestors was given to us, handed to us by somebody who was already present. And I am certain it's the Denisovans. They had this knowledge. They had a mindset that was so advanced that we could only but learn from them when we first encountered them around 40 to 50,000 years ago. Uh, there was something about the book that comes up a lot that I wanted to ask you about and what inspired this too. Because there's a couple of distinct time periods that you talk about in the book. You know, we go back to the Neanderthals, where these Denisovans were likely around. And if uh, there's Richard III, then an ice age would be the winter of our discontent. <laughs> yeah, they, so yeah. I, I want to take that little segue to um, a time period mentioned uh, 10,800 years ago. Where And you're talking about, or at least alluding to, a potential comet or slight comet impact in the North Americas, which would have uh, brought, you know, darkened the skies and spread dust uh, pretty much around the entire Earth. There's uh, evidence of that in the soil uh, everywhere. Uh, But uh, from really 10,800 years ago to about 9,600 years ago... What, where yeah. there's these this newer civilization had uh, it, it seems that they tied into um, 
the the intelligence of civilizations before that 10,800 yeah. years ago yeah. and yeah. why that period was so um meant you know often yeah. mentioned well that's right now um it seems as if one terrifying day in around 10,800 bc the peoples existing at this time which in north america for instance was the clovis people very advanced people with some creating these beautiful stone tools, which we know as the Clovis Point. Um, but not just them, but all around the world. You know, in Europe, we had the, the Magdalenian people, uh, the Swiderian people. Um, uh, we had the Natufian peoples in the Near East, etc., etc. You had all these people all doing their own thing. They were all essentially hunter-gatherers, or there was, there was a little bit of agriculture going on, um, in the Near East by this time. And then suddenly something very bright comes out of the lights, uh, not out of the sky, probably during the day, actually, and fragments into hundreds and thousands of, pe of, of pieces and explodes as it impacts with the ground, creating wildfires that just devastate and probably uh, engulf as much as 10% of the Earth's biomass uh, within just a few short weeks, uh, sending up this incredible ash uh, and debris into the atmosphere, which begins to block out the sun, block out the moon, the stars, um, and creates a permanent nighttime, a nuclear winter, which goes with the fact that these fragments of what we believe was a comet also hit the ice um, sheets that had covered large parts of particularly North America, but also in Europe, freeing up the meltwater, sending that cascading, careering through mountain valleys and landscapes, tearing apart everything that was there. And then this water going into the oceans, this really cold water, uh, and all of this combined to create a mini ice age that lasts for 1,200 years. Uh, and this is, was a terrifying event that probably wiped out, certainly in North America, the estimates are around 75% of the human population. It may have been more. Mm -hmm. um, in Europe and the Near East, probably less, but still it would have wiped out a lot of people. And... Then, finally, around 9,600 BC, it all comes to an end really quickly. Within a generation, suddenly it goes from an ice age to nice warm weather again. Mm. What happened at that time, we don't know. But a few things of importance here. Firstly, this is the date, 9,600 BC, that Plato tells us that Atlantis was destroyed say in one terrible that. night. <laughs> of earthquakes and floods, but it's also the date of Gebekli Tepe. Hmm. Gebekli Tepe is constructed at this time. And the earliest and the most sophisticated enclosures there, uh, sorry, the earliest are the most sophisticated enclosures at Gebekli Tepe, like enclosure C, enclosure D. And within these, if you start looking, you find comet imagery within their reliefs. For instance, 
in the centre of Enclosure D, you have these two huge, great monoliths, uh, which stood around and still do five and a half metres, about 18 and a half feet tall. And the one on the right, as you face towards it, has these anthropomorphic features, these, these arms, these spindly fingers coming around to the front. Uh, it has uh, like this, the, 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 the drape of, of some kind of dress, whether it be a robe or a jacket of some description, pendants around its neck. And it also has a belt, a belt with these, um, these glyphs on it. But at the front of it, there is a belt buckle. And this belt buckle has a circle with these three prongs going up, which if you look at it, you just say, that's a comet, that's a comet. And that's what I realized when I first saw it. And confirmation of this is that draped directly beneath it is in relief a fox pelt, complete with the tail. Now, universally, the fox and the fox pelt and the fox tail is a symbol of comets. In fact, in the, the early 17th century, a, uh, I think it was a Jesuit missionary in Mexico witnessed a whole ceremony that took place when a comet came into the sky and everybody started panicking. They thought the end of the world was coming and the local shamans got together, put on their fox pelts and did this ritual to appease the supernatural creature or creatures that they saw as bringing about catastrophe. And once they'd done their rituals, made their offerings and sacrifices, they told the people, look, no problems now. We, you know, we've done our thing. You won't be harmed. And that was that. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that the ritual that was witnessed at the early part of the 17th century is a semblance of something that has been going on in various parts of the world, particularly at places like Gebekli Tepe, since 9600 BC, that the shamans believed that they could curtail the baleful effects of the supernatural creatures seen to be responsible for impact events like the so-called Younger Dryas event, as it's known, this 1200-year event, by building temples like this as easy access points to the sky world so that whenever a comet would appear in the sky, they would do their thing, put on their, their, their fox pelts um, and negate this baleful, baleful influence in the sky. And I mean, you look at comets, even to this day, you know, there are some cultures that are full of dread when they appear. Why is that? Why, why, why are we scared when a comet appears in the sky, because it's a genetic thing. It's some kind of rates, you know, or genetic memory that reminds us that in the past, they were the cause of cataclysm, cataclysms that very nearly destroyed the world. So that, in my opinion, is why Gebekli Tepe was constructed. But then you have to ask yourself, well, who actually did construct it and where did they come from? Uh, and that certainly... You know, a question that we can perhaps get get into shortly. Yeah, Andrew, um, Atlantis, uh, the the history of Atlantis um, has been found, I guess, near the Bahamas, 
And with all the current weather patterns, all the hurricanes we're having um, at, at the Bahamas, do you think the Bahamas will be underwater at some point? And do you, do you feel that maybe we're headed for another ice age? Well, that's, uh, some big questions there. I mean, obviously, with the whole climate change thing, who who, who knows at this point in time? I, I don't know. I mean, yes, yeah, certainly, you know, there are predictions that suggest that uh, that many low-lying regions of the world will be engulfed, uh, certainly within the next 150 years. Uh, and whether that does or doesn't happen, obviously, we'll just have to wait and, and see. You know, the climatologists presumably know what they're talking about. But as far as the Bahamas uh, and the the, the Caribbean is concerned. Uh, this is somewhere that myself and uh, my colleague Greg Little and, mm -hmm. and his wife Laura have been looking at as the location of Atlantis for a very long time. They've done some incredible work there uh, exploring underground, sorry, underwater archaeological features of places like Bimini and Andros Island uh, and the Kaysel uh, Islands very close to Cuba. And there is absolute evidence here of uh, activity going back not just a few thousand years but probably as much as 10 to 12 thousand years and possibly even evidence that some of the structures may well have been destroyed during uh, a tsunami which may well have been the, the tsunami that accompanied this impact event which devastated northern um America, North America, uh, around 10,800 BC. It would have had a massive impact on the nearby Bahamas mm -hmm. and Caribbean. And I think that this, if we want to look for somewhere that fits the description of Plato's Atlantis, it, it is here. I mean, it should be pointed out, of course, that the Bahamas in the past were one huge great landmass. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were a, a, literally a continent in their own right. Um, they bucked up very close to Cuba. Cuba and and the Bahamas, you know, were, were I think the flagships mm. of this former Atlantean culture. I think calling them a civilization may be pushing it a bit, but and that the memory of this devastation, this cataclysm, uh, was preserved amongst those survivors of this on these islands which which remember were then split up as the waters gradually rose up at the end of the last ice age this this story these stories were preserved and were told to the first europeans that arrived in the palmas and the caribbean in around the 16th century by the early chronicles the early historians most of them spanish and what I say in one of my earlier books, Gateway to Atlantis, that came out in the year 2000, I mean, I talk about this whole Younger Dryas Comet, comet impact in there. Um, I mean, it's now mainstream, by the way. I think that's what I'm trying to point out here, <laughs> is that these similar stories could have been told to very early mariners that were reaching North America, Central America, South America, and the Bahamas and Caribbean at the time of Plato and before. There is overwhelming evidence, particularly of trade, most likely involving the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians, going back certainly to the second millennium BC. Uh, many different artifacts have been found uh, on these continents and the American continent. Uh, even boats have been found 
off the coast of places like uh, uh, Venezuela, Brazil, etc., uh, that show this transatlantic contact going on. And I think the stories that we associate with the destruction of Atlantis were brought back into the Mediterranean, where they came to the ears of philosophers like Plato, who decided to write about them in his dialogues, such as the Timaeus and the Cateus. Uh, and that's how we know about the story of Atlantis today. Right. You guys ready to take a break pretty quick? Um, it's your show and your birdies, buddy. So whatever you want to do, do you, we're do you on want board me, with. Yeah. Do you want me to end this call and you and Andrew can talk for about three or four minutes, and then I'll bring you back on, or do you want to mute your mic for three minutes? I mean, whatever you want to do. Um, no, we can. Uh, you could, if you want to do that, we can stay on. You okay. know, and you come back to us, and unless okay. he wants to take an actual break, break, you know. All right. <laughs> Go ahead and so, take us out, Chip. All right. Uh, yeah, the uh, special uh, Tim Roxbury <laughs> birthday episode of Supernatural Realm with our guest of guests, the phenomenal Andrew Collins. Uh, we have been talking about his latest uh, book, along with uh, the phenomenal Dr. Gregory L. Little, called Denisovan Origins. See, Greg says Denisa, and that's why I was pronouncing it that way. <laughs> so, so that's correct. Yeah. Was it? Was it? Denisovan, yeah, you, yeah, Greg got it right. You got it right. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, wow, see? How, how often is that going to happen? Right, <laughs> right, this is on the calendar. Right. Yeah. yeah, usually it's the other way around. Uh, yeah, don't touch that dial. We have uh, some very, very important stuff we're going to be talking about. Uh, uh, very personal to our friend Andrew Collins here that you're not going to hear anywhere else, and, and this is stuff that we really have to talk about. So don't touch that dial. We'll be right back after this break. They're on Supernatural Realm Radio with the great Tim Roxbury birthday. Day. We'll be right back. You're listening to WCT.FM. Talk radio like no other. Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in Paranormal Talk entertainment, including the network you're listening to right now. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. LNM merchandise is finally here. We have a large selection of shirts, hats, wall clocks, phone cases, stickers, jewelry, and much more. It's been a long time coming, but it's worth the wait. With great prices and quality products from Calf Press. Just go to LateNightInTheMidlands.com and click the big blue banner at the top of every page. Every purchase helps keep LNM Radio on the air, so stock up and tell the world you're a late nighter. So again, go to www.LateNightInTheMidlands.com and click the big blue banner at the top. Than late night in the Midlands. There's nothing better than late night in the Midlands. I love to talk to people from the Heartland. They're tremendous people, they really are. Opinions, politics. I'm going to give you 10 minutes tonight because you're tremendous people. Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris, she's a horror show. Elizabeth Warren. 
Pocahontas. But I mean, Elizabeth Warren, I love my Pocahontas. She <laughs> is the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, good old Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, oh my God, what a communist. He's not even a socialist. He is such a communist. Then there's Sloppy Joe. <clears throat> I mean, Sleepy Joe. Sleepy Joe Biden. Every time he sniffs a little girl's head. You heard the man. Nothing better. Late night in the Midlands. We cover everything. What is the supernatural realm exactly? Why do people have paranormal or mystical experiences? There's some science behind it they're not looking at. Why do some people have negative encounters and others don't? What are the best methods to use and is there some new truth to them? We'll ask these questions on the hit radio show, Supernatural Realm with Tim Roxbury, Tuesdays and Thursdays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern with your co-host Chip Reichenthal. Supernatural Realm, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 7 to 9 Eastern, leading into Michael Vera's Late Night in the Midlands at 9, right here on WCETFM, because that's where the action is. All too often, I wake up in the middle of the night. I wake up and my bed starts shaking. I hear things. I had just laid down to bed, starting to doze off, and all of a sudden, I hear this, like, kicking at the wall. I see things. I look toward my closet door, and there's this, this face, this, like, orangish-red face. Sometimes I see strange beings standing around me. Well, I would get these, what I called visitations at night. How could I tell anyone? And I could not get the police department to listen to me on it. And I wonder who would even believe me. You're not going to believe what happened to me on the ride home. What should I do? We're trying to decide what to do. Late night in the Midlands. It's worth the wake. Mondays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Kindness Beyond the Veil. Even in the darkest realms and mysteries, good things happen. Kind, even loving things. In the paranormal, psychic world, extraterrestrials, mystical healing, light workers, starseeds, things that have astounded us since the beginning of time, do have a Monday side to them. And we'll show you on Kindness Beyond the Veil. Every Monday, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern with your host, Chip Reichenthal. Leading into Michael Barra's Late Night in the Midlands show at 9 Eastern, making Mondays worthy of looking forward to right here on WCETFM because that's where the action is. So, you love talk radio, then you'll love TalkStreamLive.com. TalkStream Live is always on, 24-7, with the best streaming talk shows. Find your favorite talkers and discover some new ones. It's free, readily available online, or on mobile with any smartphone or tablet. Finding your favorite talk shows all in one place has gotten a whole lot easier. Just go to TalkStreamLive.com. Be sure to download the free apps from Google Play or the iTunes App Store.
<laughs> now we're coming on the second hour of the Supernatural Realm right here on WCET.FM. And we're going to call Andrew and Chip back. And uh, Andrew is going to talk about uh, some things that went on over in Turkey at the Kalepe Tempe site. So we're going to let uh, Andrew vent a little bit because I don't think he's going to take it anymore. So, I'm going to go ahead and call them back in, and then uh, we'll see what Andrew has to say about what he experienced at Kalepe Tempe. Just one second here. I'll bring him on. Um, we're back, guys. And, uh, and, okay. I just got and, done uh, playing. We're not going to take it. So, <laughs> for Andrew. But, you know, and he said, uh, Clifford actually said, uh, that that area where I, I we pinpointed was actually already known to him and that his his family would bring him to that very area, not necessarily to that spot, but that, that area, which was to the south of Sedona, when he was young, and say, this is our place of emergence. This is, you know, what the um, the, 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 the Hopi referred to as, as a sipapu. And, and I thought, oh, my God, that's exactly what we picked up. So... None of this was known and none of this was connected with this Rendlesham binary code stuff before we got to the site. And that told me there's something in this, there's something to this, that whatever it was that was downloaded into the mind of Jim Penniston back in 1980 relates not simply to the importance of places in the past, but places that are going to become important in the future. Um, and I mean, we could go on, but I think we 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 should be talking about yeah. other. So, uh. <laughs> right? Yeah. But, but during the break, we were t- talking about something I saw on the Ancient Aliens last week. With these two gentlemen, I uh, think it was twenty or thirty years ago, if yeah. not longer, yeah. Yeah. Uh, saw something in a, a forest closer to Andrew's neck of the woods than yeah. ours, yeah, uh, and but, were inspired yeah. to come up with this uh, binary code. They didn't even know the ones and zeros, you know. Right. And this yep. was before computers, so we weren't kind yep. of thinking those terms. And and it, it seemed to, they had somebody run it um, a, a few years back, you know, now that we did have that technology to do that. And it came up with messages like, uh, we are watching over you or something to that effect and, and gave some um, locations. And I, I thought it was one specific location. Uh, no, just yeah. off of the coast of Ireland, where there's this sunken island, but Andrew was saying that there were several locations That's all right. around, yeah, yeah, uh, including yeah. Sedona, Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tim. Yeah, Andrew, you have something you want to talk about about your experiences at Calipe Tempe? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Gebekli Tepe is somewhere that I first visited in 2004. Uh, I first got to know about it four years earlier when details of its discovery was first released to the general public. That was within a a German magazine. Um, Now, I'd already been working on that particular culture uh, who archaeologists referred to as the pre-pottery Neolithic um, peoples uh, for many, many years. In fact, I talk about them as far back as from the Ashes of Angels in 1996 Uh, So in every book they appear and uh, I'd been gradually evolving my my knowledge of them. Then Gebekli Tepe is discovered and everything that I'd been saying had come true. I said that there was 
essentially going to be evidence of this lost civilization involving these bird shamans, um, you know, to do with the vulture, uh, who were the founders of civilization, the founders of the Neolithic Revolution. They would be found somewhere in the area of southeast Turkey. Um, And here it was. Here was Gebekli Tepe. Um, so it, I was excited by it. I obviously wanted to write about it. I obviously wanted to visit there. And I did so in 2004. And um, I went there because my book from the Ashes of Angels had been published in Turkish two years earlier uh, by a publisher uh, called Avesta. And so impressed were the Turkish people and the Kurdish people uh, mm. in this book that they invited me out to Diyarbakar, which is the administrative center of uh, Southeast Turkey, uh, to take part in a cultural festival where I would uh, lecture on the book and and obviously other subjects as well. So I said, well, look, you know, as part of this deal, you know, I'd like to see these sites. I mean, places I've not seen before. They said, no problem, we'll give you a driver and a guide for a week and you just do it do your own thing it's a brilliant so i went to gebekli tepe i went to the ancient um hermetic city of haran with its weird astronomical tower i went to other sites associated with the pre-pottery neolithic culture like karahan tepe and chayonu which is not far from diabakar and other places like this and the mayor who was the guy that officially invited me out to this got me into his office and he sat me down and shook me hand and said nice things. And he said, look, I want you to write another book, you know, on, on this region, you know, highlight it to the world. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I'll do that. No problem. Uh, and the result of that was the Cygnus mystery that came out two years later, which mm-hmm. starts with Gebekli Tepe. That's the first book that features it. Mm-hmm. Well, subsequent to this, I wrote a book called, Gebekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods, which sums up everything you ever need to know about Gebekli Tepe. And that was published in 2014. Um, It it doesn't just cover the, (coughs) excuse me, the archaeology, but also its impact upon myths and legends um, within, let's say, the the Bible and the Watchers and the Nephilim, but also the, the Ananarchi, because the Ananarchi were said to be the founders of civilization in Sumerian, Akkadian, and later Babylonian tradition. And even the discoverer of Gebekli Tepe, Dr. Klaus Schmidt, uh, the late great Klaus Schmidt, because he um, sadly is no longer with us, he died in 2014. But he discovered Gebekli Tepe in 1994. Um, he'd seen a report about the discovery of a large number of stone tools on the top of this mountain uh, not far from the the ancient city of of Urfa or Shunlurfa as it's known today and he went out there and he saw fragments of stone um, pillars now these had been noticed before by an earlier team but they were so advanced that they were dismissed as fragments from a Byzantine cemetery that was no, no older than about 1,500 years. Whereas when Klaus Schmidt got there, he recognised them as part of this, that same culture he'd already been working with 
the pre-pottery Neolithic because he'd been working on a site called Nivalichuri, the northern part of the province of San Lurfa. So he immediately said, my God, this is the motherlode. And he started work there. He uncovered one, then two, then three, then four, then, then quite literally about 10 of these enclosures, some very large, some of them very small. And this was how Gebekli Tepe was discovered. Mm. Um, and it's so important that he did this because that particular hillside had been scheduled for destruction for masonry to be used, you know, stone rubble for the building of the local road uh, from Shanlerfa to the nearby city of Marden. So it was so important that it was discovered when it was. Otherwise, we would know we wouldn't know anything about. Yeah, what are the odds of that? Right? Anyway, I wrote this book called Gebekli Tepe Genesis for the Gods. It was a bestseller, not just uh, around the world, but also in Turkey. It was translated over there. It's available even to this day uh, in virtually every good bookshop. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's there in all museum bookshops. Uh, and I understand it, it sells very well. Not that I see any money from it. But that's, not the, <laughs> that's another story altogether. Yeah, story yeah. of my life. <laughs> that, that, that's kind of ironic, uh, Andrew, anyway, because... Um, I'm be just glad it's out there. Yeah. But... Uh, Anyway, so I started to take tours out there. Um, uh, probably, I think the first one we did was in 2012, I think, the first one. And they've been very successful. And they allow people to see Gebekli Tepe uh, in the company of somebody like myself, who, who essentially knows what he's talking about. So that, that's good. Um, but then things started to change. You know, the atmosphere started to change to do with Turkey. And I went there last year uh, with a very large um, group. Uh, well, it's our large group. It's about 30 people from various different nationalities, American, British, some Europeans, uh, Australian. Um, and we got there and immediately everybody started to realize that they were being shadowed by mm. security at the site. Now, bear in mind that it's not the same as it was in 2004. Now, it's totally undercover. There are massive, great um, fences around so that, um, you know, you, you, you have to sort of either get over them. And occasionally they put on this temporary, like, tarpauling roof that virtually covers up everything and makes it virtually impossible to photograph any of the enclosures now. And this tarpauling was over there, allegedly because of um, some building work that they were, they were doing or some repairs, which is fair enough. But it made it almost impossible for people to, to, to photograph. So they were trying to squeeze their camera lenses through these stupid, you know, wire fence, you know, to, to try and get a couple of decent shots of the, um, the thing. And immediately they started doing this. They were set upon by the security in a very rude, abusive manner. And... At first, you thought, well, they're just a bit overzealous, you know, overprotective of the site. But this pattern started to escalate. And when our people started to say, well, why are you targeting me, but not that person there? Uh, things started to escalate. And I began to realize the whole thing was being orchestrated by a particular figure who I could hear speak in English. Hmm. And at first, I thought I didn't know who he was. And I thought, well, let's go over to him. Yeah, just say, look, you know, uh, we're, I'm with a tour group. And at that point, I suddenly realized who it was. And it was Dr. Lee Clare. Now, he's the site manager 
and the lead archaeologist, uh, an Englishman like myself, um, in charge of excavations at Gebekli Tepe. And I went over there to try and defuse the situation. By this time, he's, he's screaming at a couple of our tour group. And I went, I, I, I held out my hand to shake his hand. He recoiled backwards uh, as if, you know, he was touching dirt and started screaming at me. And he basically saying, get out of here, get out of here. Uh, we don't want your lies and, and pseudoscience here. Oh, my God. And, and I'm not kidding you because one of our people just happened to have their camera rolling at that time and recorded everything. So we've got everything on, 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 on tape. So nobody can deny that this, this occurred. Um, and it just got worse. He said, go, get out, get out now, get out. And basically um, just made everything uncomfortable immediately. And so people just started to walk away thinking that, you know, they could just continue to do what they do. But no, they were being tailed. Some people uh, said that it, it was clear that their conversations were being recorded uh, by telephone, you know, uh, sound recorders on telephones by the security. And I, I was approached again by, by Lee Claire, said, what, would you please just go? And mm. this was it. And we were basically forced out the site, forced onto a minibus, at which point I discovered two things, that our guides had to intervene to stop the military police wow. possibly arresting me. And Jeez. secondly, that I was on a blacklist of archaeological sites um, that would, that, in other words, if I turned up and that I was at, you know, one of these sites, I would be, you know, either turned away or arrested. Um, and all of this was suddenly happening. I mean, everybody didn't know what the hell was going on. Um, Least of all, you we, we, we went back to Shanlurfa, uh, and I won't give any names here, but uh, one of our group collapsed and had a seizure. Um, in, the, in the restaurant, as soon as we got in there and, you know, and the, the local people said, you know, do you want to go off to the hospital, the rest of it? And unquestionably, this was brought on by the stress of what had just happened. Mm -hmm. um, and the next day, we were scheduled to go back to uh, Gebekli Tepe. And I felt the best thing to do is for me not to go. Uh, I said to the, the tour guests, I said, look, if you want to go, you go. You know, the coach will take you drop you off, stay there and, and come back. But most people didn't go. Um, but a few did. And those that did were, were shadowed again, but not in the same way because I wasn't there. But one of them was approached by a German archaeologist. And she said to him, he was trying to get some photographs. He was just, you know, quiet. And she said, are you with Andrew Collins's group? Uh, uh, at which point he sort of turns around and sort of hesitantly says, uh, actually, yes, I am. And she said, well, she said, I just want to apologize, uh, you know, on behalf of, of uh, you know, Dr. Lee Claire and my colleagues. She said, we don't all agree with his, his attitude. I just want you to know this. Everybody should have their views and opinions on this site. Um, I have read Andrew's book, you know, Gebekli Tepe Genesis Garden. I found it very interesting and everybody should have the right to write what they like about the site. So she was incredibly apologetic. And of course, you know, this apology was graciously received. Um, so it should be pointed out that this is not the official view of the German Archaeological uh, Institute who work with the Turkish uh, authorities to excavate Gebekli Tepe. 
so you know for some reason this is something that that is orchestrated by Lee Clare himself a fellow, um, and, a fellow Englishman no. yeah and I mean obviously you've got to under, try and understand what 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 is his problem I mean you know uh what is it you tell me what is his problem well I anyway, I He's jealous of your work, Andrew. I mean, that's pretty pretty clear to me. He just yeah. doesn't. You're better than. Yeah, but he even is, even then, it doesn't know? make sense. I, I mean, look, I was thinking in in terms of maybe uh, I read somewhere, perhaps uh, along the lines of uh, something you posted recently, that maybe it was something having to do with the uh, Prophet Muhammad, who maybe yeah, that this was the largest too. temple well, there and it would impact yeah, some religion, yeah. or the Erdogan government might have a problem with well, it. it. But it, having an Englishman who is a, a fellow archaeologist, uh, you were invited by the mayor. <laughs> maybe he wants all the maybe it. he wants all the glory and all the fame with this location. He, well, look, um, well, here's the thing, right? Um, I was also written to by a a Turkish guide who'd witnessed the whole thing mm -hmm. whilst we were there. He wrote to me, found me, wrote to me separately after I got back. He apologised on behalf of the Turkish people, um, you know, for what had happened. And he said, look, it's part of an endemic that, that's much bigger than what you know. Now, I'm not necessarily saying this was exactly the reasons behind Dr. Um, actions, but he said there's more things going on in the background you don't know about. He said, within Turkey itself, within certain areas of the academic community, the amount of publicity that Gebekli Tepe is getting from the news media and the popular media to do with it being the first temple in the world, the first spiritual place, I suppose, is not going down very well at all. Um, and that there are things afoot to try and change that, to make it, a domestic dwelling somewhere that's not that important therefore it will not rival religious ideas mm. that are current within turkey at the moment and one of these ideas is that gebekli tepe was the house of the idols belonging to tira who is the father of abraham now abraham is the you know obviously the patriarch he's connected in myths and legends with nearby Shanlurfa. It said he was born there, he lived there, he came up against the, the tyrant um, uh, Nimrod there and was nearly burnt to death, but, uh, but, but God intervened and you know, a whole load of water fell and the kindling of the fire changed into these fish, which even today are there in the so-called Pools of Abraham, which is in Shanlurfa city. This, these are the, the traditions. Now, Tira, we know, is connected with nearby Haran because it said that when um, Abraham uh, and Tira and the family decided they would leave uh, the area of Ur of the Chaldees, which I do firmly link with this area of southeast Turkey, and mm. to go to Canaan, they tarried for a while at Haran, um, which is very close by uh, to both Gebekli Tepe and Shanlurfa. So, there was a documentary, which somebody has actually linked on my Facebook page, you can see it there, which was a official Turkish documentary to try and prove that Gebekli Tepe was the house of idols in terror. Now, the reason for this is that it makes it to be of no importance 
and to be a domestic dwelling from a religious perspective. Now, I'm not saying that Dr. Clare advocates this at all. I don't think he does whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is there is a, a, a tension building within the academia of Turkey that allowed this whole zeitgeist to be used against me because obviously I'm promoting Gebekli Tepe as the first temple. I have, I've written this best-selling book mm -hmm. on the subject. I appear on television. Yeah, best-selling in Turkey like, too. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, uh, on things like Ancient Aliens and, and other documentaries talking and about Gebekli Tepe. That, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I am, you know, the figurehead mm -hmm. of this pseudoscience of lies <laughs> that he is throwing against at against me. And crazy. So well, yeah, now that was that. Now that all happened last year. I think it was in October. Wow. And then this happened. In and the then they ban year. your book. Right. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say so, thousands of years later, you get attacked by a Nimrod. Yeah. Oh, did <laughs> I right. say that out loud? Okay. So <laughs> that was that was last year. Now let's come forward to this last week, because uh, I started to hear from various people in in Turkey, uh, both Turks and Kurds that my book had been seized when wow. it was found in the possession of a, and I put this in inverted commas, prisoner uh, in jail uh, who was given this book. The book was snatched away from them, uh, an official investigation undertaken, oh. and it went through the courts, and I've seen the, the, the verdict, that this was considered a piece of uh Kurdish PKK propaganda oh. and all copies in the whole of the the, the the country were seized and destroyed and the book will no longer be sold anywhere. Oh. And if you looked today on uh, Amazon Turkey, they've got their own site there, you can see that it's now no longer available. Uh, my other books are, thank God at the moment, uh, in Turkey, but that's that. But the, the bigger implications is that we've made inquiries uh, with the Turkish police contacts and it would now be me, be very unsafe uh, for me to go to Turkey under such a climate uh, that I would face arrest um, and imprisonment. Wow. But this is an extension of your other books. Why would they let your other books out and then they, well, they wouldn't let you well, have this Well, um, I mean, okay, look. From the Ashes of Angels, written in 1995. I had no idea at that time that that book would become a bestseller uh, around the world, particularly in Turkey, mm. you know, or that I'd even be going to Turkey when I wrote it. Because, right. I mean, at that time, I was just a lad, you know, in England, you know, writing you, his first you series. You were nobody, yeah. yeah. And um, so I had no idea. So, yes, I'll admit that there was a couple of references in there to the Kurds. And the book actually is dedicated to the Kurdish people as the mm. keepers of the cradle of civilization. Um, now I realize that, that that was a big mistake as far as uh, the reach of that book, mm. because, you know, it would restrict it uh, even amongst academics. And I've actually had academics write to me and they said, look, we'd like to embrace what you say in your book. We can't because it does mention Kurds in there. We cannot do it. But now that's all boiled over to what's happened in the last week. Um, so that's it. I can't go to Gebekli Tepe ever again. I can't go to Turkey 
um, you know, that that's out. And until I can get, plus, you know, we've had, we had tours. I had a tour planned uh, next September to go there uh, uh, with, you know, a, a, a multinational group, plus a, a more private one with a, a German party in May. That's out the window now. So, um, so I suffer. I'm suffer mm. for, from this. Now, I mean, okay, people have said to me, look, you reap what you sow, ultimately. You know, if you do mention Kurds in your book, then, you know, that's it. But what's, what's such a shame is that that book, it's not about Kurds themselves. It's about the religions of these people. Right. The, 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 the Kurdish people have incredible religions. Mm-hmm. The Yazidis, the Yarasin, the Alevi, all of them believe in angels. All of them believe in these traditions that go back to the Neolithic age. Um, they believe in, in in birds being gods connected with bird shamanism and the rest of it. Uh, they believe that the angels were, were human, actually walked the earth. Loads of really, really cool, interesting stuff. Mm. And it's that that was in this book as an extension of all this work on the pre-pottery Neolithic. That's why this book's being banned, because it focuses interest and attention on these people who are clearly the original inhabitants of that part oh. of Turkey or Anatolia, as it is known geographically. Wow. Uh, boy, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad and disturbing to hear that. Could, can I ask an offshoot question of that, though? Um, taking it outside of, of Turkey and, and thinking, look, this is, this is something that you had an instinct about before it was even discovered. I mean, yeah. you mentioned that. Yeah. And first of all, how incredible and phenomenal is that? And at the same time, as amazing as that is, who could predict that, you know, 20 years down the road, you'd get all this, you know, political backlash from it when when they were really embracing to yeah. you, it, you know, back when, like you said, the first time you got there, a, a farmer or two, you yeah. know, or a cowboy. <laughs> there was nobody yeah. around, there were no gates. And nothing. No, there was nothing there. Yeah, I mean... Um, it's a, it's a difficult one. I, I suppose, as somebody else said in the past couple of days, as all this has been hitting the fan, as it were, is that, you know, you must be doing something right exactly. for all of well, this, yeah. this backlash. Well, that, that was my question I was going to tie in, because I, I, I talked to Greg uh, about this on Monday, where I, I had mentioned leading into the book about the history of eugenics and the Western culture, and... Uh, and how that really, uh, here in the States, because, you know, if you live in the United States, you pretty much think about the United States, and yeah, I'll say that out loud, <laughs> you know, we couldn't find Iraq or England on a map, you know, if we were asked mm-hmm. to. Uh, but with that said, you know, we can understand, the, the, you know, when we grew up as kids, the history of this country, you know, uh, the settlers were great because they, you know, they took the land from these uh, Indians and and made them basically as a fourth fourth grader, <laughs> yeah. they're like secondhand citizens. You know, it's just kind of easy to debate. And that really comes from you know Charles Darwin's first cousin uh, in an attempt to you know calm down the church from this whole evolution thing. He said, "Oh, well, let's do the eugenics." You know, I've been 
you know, traits, human traits of people, and and some people just belong and others don't. You know, some yeah. are better than others, and we really have to set this hierarchy. And nothing to do with nobility or like the giants back in the day. But the giants were part of the Indian tribes here, you know, and the from the Christopher Columbus period on, or the history of any state in this nation here is based on pretty much the same thing. You got uh, three Native American tribes that finally get along and then settlers come in and the guise of this missionary, this uh, religious person who wants everybody to get along and all of a sudden there are more settlers than there are natives and the settlers say, hey, guess what, you know? And it kind of becomes part of that. And when looking at the history that you're both pointing out in the book about uh, the North American continent <laughs> and and this, this push from like uh, a long, long ago from the Baltics, you know, through Alaska, down through the mm. uh, North Americas or in the South America where you see these giants. But when, well, you know, in our history books, when we want to sound like these superior people, we can't have information about the inferior so-called people being eight feet to 12 feet tall. <laughs> You know, and that sort of thing. And it occurs to me that this, the great work, like the, the most current book, The Nisbet Origins, um, could pose a threat to That's exactly. uh, his, historians who have had, you know, for 20, 30 years, you know, their name attached to something that your brilliant and magnificent research. Well, that's exactly what I was saying, Chip. Uh, yeah. some, something along those lines, you know. So, so I'm I'm trying to think based on just the I mean the true horror of what you've had to endure, um, could you know apply even uh, here with historians or archaeologists that have reputations and this and that or Smithsonian's that don't want this stuff out there and that kind of thing. Um, because it's so ahead of its time, it's so ahead of its day. Even when you started this whole thing in 1996, it was ahead of its time then, probably. Yeah, uh, uh, that you know, it it wouldn't surprise us. Unfortunately, it pains me to say that to see the same thing happen just about anywhere in the world when you seem to have really such razor-focused insight into civilizations that make them smarter than anybody else does. You know, you're finding these pressured tools that, that points to uh, completely different periods in time and actually points to the true magnificence and intelligence yeah. of these people from some 300,000 years ago that were smart enough to do this. Or the Denisovans, which you mentioned, had these the this jewelry, the bracelets with these precision holes. It's like you yeah. need... You know, and, and this is, you need a stone mill, as you mentioned in the book, to, to duplicate in this day and age what they were doing, you know, anywhere from um, uh, 11,000 to 300,000 years ago. Um, mm. and, and, and it just, uh, because I, I, I kind of pondered that, you know, to me too, when we were reading uh, about it this, especially the latest book, and, and really how brilliant it is and how well put it is I, I you know to us this is like the book to get for anybody that is interested in ancient civilizations and prehistoric Even civilizations civilization. puts things in unique and different perspectives worldwide yeah. and changes a lot of the talk 
about what we've been hearing, you know, since we were little kids. And there should this should be celebrated, not punished. And just wanted to ask you your particular feelings about if you think you've seen any of that or, um, you know, if that would make sense, uh, considering that a lot of people who have been talking about this stuff for years and years uh, have been really kind of <laughs> Chip, we got down. we got 10 minutes just just interject really? okay. yeah so well look um I, I don't know i mean from from my perspective i just write where the truth goes and mm. um uh you know if that takes me into turkey it, i'm there if it takes me into siberia or mongolia or china as it's doing at the moment or tibet you know that's where i'm at um, and yes, I have been banned from Turkey. Um, I almost caused an inc international incident in uh, Egypt as well with the, the rediscovery of the cave complex at Giza in 2008. Let's not forget that and mm -hmm. brought me in direct opposition to our good friend, Dr. Zahi Hawass there um, for, for a while. But um, that's all smoothed over. Thank God for that. So mm -hmm. I can still go to to <laughs> Egypt. Um but, you know, uh, you have to go with where the evidence points. And with the Denisovans, we are focusing more on the area of Siberia, um, the area, obviously, of Mongolia, uh, Tibet. The, these are the areas that, that, that are beginning to now come into clear focus. And the fact that the Denisovans were in these areas, and you know, we've mentioned about their jewellery, but what we haven't mentioned yet is that they created not just the earliest musical instrument in the form of a, uh, a, a either a flute or a whistle, so fragments of which have been found, but also the earliest bone needles, you know, complete with a hole at one end, which they were almost certainly using to create tailored clothing. Um, and on top of this, there's some evidence, it's been proposed that they domesticated and rode horses, uh, you know, and so all of this stuff starts to add up. But on top of that, they had a certain type of stone tool technology, which had been around for hundreds of thousands of years called Musturium, uh, which is mostly associated with Neanderthals. But they started to develop that and created a new type of stone technology called blade technology. Now, we won't go into all the, the great details in this because it's just, pointless to do so at this point in time it's all in the book but to create blade tools you have to have a process and you did allude to this uh, chip which is known as pressure flaking and pressure flaking means that you you have a a, a pre-prepared block of stone might be it obsidian or um, flint for instance and you get a tool that's a little bit like a sort of um you know, like a wooden uh, handle of, of, a, of a spoon or something, and, and you prise off large, long blades of stone. And these, if done properly, will come out looking like prisms. And this is a technology that you can't just, you know, just achieve on your own. It is something that's passed on from teacher to pupil. And this is something that's been long accepted for, for the last hundred years of archaeology. Well, now we can say that the earliest form of that technology not only is in the very area where the Denisovans were in southern Siberia and northern 
Mongolia, which buck onto each other and neighbor each other. But the important thing is, is it's then adopted by our earliest human ancestors, just like the needle, just like musical instruments, um, just like jewelry and everything else, and is then carried into other parts of the world, east into China, south into India and subcontinent, and westwards, most importantly, into Europe. And it would seem to have entered into Europe all these technologies as waves of activity mm. coming in with peoples known as the Gravitians, with the Salutrians, and finally the so-called Swiderians. And the Swiderian peoples are the ones that, that I say, and I'm pretty certain that this is correct, bring knowledge of these technologies to allow the creation of Gebekli Tepe around 9600 BC. Um, and we can tell it, it's almost like a, a paper trail. There's a paper trail that goes from northern Mongolia about 40,000, 50,000 years ago, gradually westwards across the Ural Mountains, which divide Europe from Asia, down into southwest Asia, and then also westwards into Europe. I mean, it, it's, it's a clear trail. And yet archaeologists deny this. What they say is that all of this is what they call independent invention. Nobody carries nothing nowhere as far mm. as they're concerned. Everybody mm. invents something and then somebody, you know, a few hundred miles down the road, invents it again. And then somebody a couple of thousand miles invents it. That's what they believe. Why? Because they cannot handle the idea of migrations. They hate the concept of people moving in large droves as they would see them from one territory to the west because it has the idea of conquering conquest mm. and you know things which are no longer deemed acceptable and this is answering your question in many ways within what's known as physical anthropology and and that because obviously it's been so abused and misused across the decades um that to think this way is now considered to be wrong. But clearly both Greg and I do talk about this in this book. And yes, we have been accused of being racist. We've been accused of being white supremacist. We've been, oh, used, we've been accused as, really? as Europoids. I'm, I'm serious. Wow. I'm serious simply because we talk about these subjects. Oh, you've got to be kidding. You know? And you get to the point where you just, you know, when, when it... I mean, this is not the first time. My book, Cygnus Key, similar things were, 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 were suggested simply by covering these subjects. And I've got to the point where I actually don't care because I know that what I write is the truth and it's, it's what genuine. the evidence shows. Um, and yes, I am very conscious of political correctness. I have to be careful. I was told, you know, to go through my book, The Cygnus Key, and take out the word white. Are you I'm serious? I did. So I, I did. I went through the oh entire book, taking out the word white. That's crazy. And then I got to this point where it's referring to a white goose. And I thought, this is stupid. <laughs> this is stupid. That's just as bad as what's going on here in America with the racism. Yeah, so, you know, look, I don't, let this get me wrong. don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm all for doing things right and equality and all the rest of it. But sometimes... 
the correctness just gets really... Yeah, that's it, a it's pretty bad. Little, yeah, it's pretty uh, bad you got to be politically correct to write a freaking book. I mean, jeez. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, no, I'm and, serious. This is something which is becoming more and more dominant within not just, obviously, the film industry, but, but obviously within literature as well. Uh, I mean, look, I, I don't want to go against this. If I can, you know, help society, I will. Yeah, but and you are. When it gets silly, when it gets silly, then, you know, like taking out the word white from, from, a, from a book, <laughs> yeah, that, that's then, a, that, you know, that's it just gets over stupid. the top. Yeah. <laughs> that's the Western civilization version of the whole Kurdish thing. And, and boy, yeah. you know, it, I'm, it, I'm so it, sorry it to see like, if it's any consolation, as great a writer as you are, Timmy and I are pretty good writers, and we're going to write you a Wikipedia page because <laughs> I understand that something happened on that end too. Right? Yeah, that that that's 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 something I put out the other day. Um, you know, I've done all these things. Let let's say I've I've made all these great discoveries. Um, I found a, a whole cave complex that nobody knew about in Egypt. Uh, my books are banned in 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 Turkey. And yeah, I haven't got a Wikipedia page. Why? Because the skeptics, the dark lords that control Wikipedia, deem that I've never done anything that's that's historically worthy. I'm serious. Yeah. I'm serious. Oh my God! Oh. How does that work? How do they define that? How's that work, Andrew? Well, it's got something to do with uh, independent references. Um, <laughs> oh my but, God! I mean, not being funny, but you know, what what do you want? What do they want? I <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't know what they want. I mean, right. you know, it's oh. uh, uh, so yeah. I mean, please, if there's anybody out there that thinks that they can get me a Wikipedia page, then please let's do, do it, Chip. Let's get them one. I'll tell you, yeah, yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be the closest thing I'll ever. We're not going to take this crap anymore. Hey, Chip. I don't know. People look, said to me, look, they're more trouble than they're worth. I wouldn't worry about it. But I think that it, it would be nice if I could be recognized in, in some small way for my contributions to humanity by the point I die. You know? Well, you exactly. Know, uh, well, and we gonna, will always, and we're going to keep your works alive, whether you're with us or not. We, we got we to gotta have you back on, Andrew. This has been wonderful. Yeah. We got to yeah. have you back on. This well, is, we, love, we love you. We love talking Talk about to you. Egypt. Yes, you know, yeah. That cave discovery. I mean, it's an incredible story. Right. So and and I like how, you know, because of the, there was some of that in, in uh, the Cygnus Key, too, That's about right. finding yeah, some yeah, of these yeah. tools yeah. that date way, way back. I'm right. not going to say they're white people tools. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are. You just <laughs> did. Here's, here's one thing. No political correctness here. We're probably almost out of time, but I mean, you know, uh, Greg and I do talk a lot about the Salutrians and the mm -hmm. Salutrian mm -hmm. hypothesis, the idea that these guys who were in Europe got across to America maybe as early as 20,000 years ago. But here's the thing. The Salutrian hypothesis has been associated with white supremacists and whatever, because what they've said is that it suggests that white Europeans got to America before Asians came, got there from the Asian continent. But the one thing I want to emphasize, and this is very important, is that the evidence that we present in Denisovan origins shows that those Salutrians were Asian people. Mm -hmm. They were Asians. Moving. And, and you were already getting enough flack for going not Clovis in the yeah. first place. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can't win for losing. And these people that stepped off of Europe and ended up in North America were not Europeans at all. They were actually Asians. 
so that the people that were coming into North America from both directions, east and west, were Asians who probably started their journey in places like Mongolia, Siberia and, and Central Asia. And that both of them had moved outwards in their own respective directions and ended up in the Americas to create what we call the American Genesis. Yeah. And, and you know what? We, we got to go. Call them white Asians, and it's uh, everywhere else around the world that'll ban you too. Chip, take yeah, us out. We got to go. We got to go. Timmy, it's your birthday. You take us out. The Denisovans yeah. <laughs> from the genetics do seem to have been quite swarthy with, with uh, brown skin, brown hair, and brown eyes. So I just want to yeah. make that clear. How can people get all your books, Andrew? We got to go. Okay. Um, Denisovan Origins, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's available now in. Um, America uh, is coming out in Europe on uh, October the 3rd. Reserve. If you like what you've heard, you want to connect with me, find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and andrewcollins.com. Andrewcollins.com. That's my website. So happy to hear from everybody out there. <laughs> we'll give you our Wikipedia page proposal in a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, up happy next, birthday, great... Tim Roxbury. <laughs> yeah, and, and happy birthday, Tim. I hope you've had a great birthday. Thank you. Yeah, up next, the great Michael Vera for Late Night in the Midlands from 9 p.m. Eastern to midnight. Good night, everybody. Yep, thanks for listening. We love you. <laughs> Listening to WCT.FM, talk radio like no other. God, I love the station.